I'm turning this evening to Paul's letter to the Philippians, chapter 3 and verse 7. Philippians chapter 3, verse 7. But what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ, yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, refuse, that I may win Christ. And our subject is simply the losses and gains in conversion to Christ. Now the Apostle Paul speaks rather like a merchant, calculating his outgoings, his expenses, and his uh, income, and estimating his profit. He uses that kind of language. But he's speaking, of course, about conversion. Conversion to God by belief in Christ as the only Savior. Now, conversion, such a remarkable phenomenon, such an extraordinary act of God in any life. Some years ago, I was speaking to a man. He was a university professor, and we were talking about uh, uh, the Christian faith and the gospel, and it was quite plain that he didn't realize, he didn't understand what a radical thing conversion is. He seemed to think it was something lifelong, something you had to toil at, something you had to work at, rather than a sudden and astonishing act of God to change someone in their innermost being. It is the greatest, the most profound change than it can occur in anyone's experience. It's not like education. Education. You toil from childhood up through the elementary grades to the senior grades. You go to your university, you work, and you work. It's all work. You've got to earn your results. You've got to toil. You come by knowledge gradually, little by little. And it's acquired over the years. Conversion isn't like that. It isn't something you work at. It isn't something you earn or deserve. It isn't something that is acquired in stages. No, it's no good as an illustration, education or employment. You enter into employment, obviously you get paid. You hope you'll go up and you'll be promoted, and so it happens so often, and you acquire more responsibility, and you get paid more, but it's all work, and earn, and advance, and go up little by little. Well, that's no use as an illustration for conversion, which is a sudden event, and all the change is accomplished in you and for you, By the power of God, you are changed, and it costs you nothing. You don't earn it, you don't deserve it. These things, all earthly life in general, you acquire experience. What a sad thing earthly life is viewed from one point of view. You gain experience. Now maybe you're in your 30s, 
and you're much more experienced than you were in your early 20s and then into your 40s and your 50s and even without learning you're picking up knowledge all the time and you're experiencing different situations different uh, events and you remember these things and you begin to uh, discern people and situations because you've seen them before. You're experienced. And you get very old and here you are with masses of experience and knowledge. And suddenly you die. Viewed from this point of view, how sad. What a waste, you might think. And the old, old saying is so apt that the death of an old man or an old woman is rather like the destruction of a library. All that knowledge gone, vanished, finished. And especially if you're an atheist and you don't believe in God and you've never made your peace with God and you've never been forgiven by God and you have no walk with God, no hope of heaven. What a tragedy then all those years are. But life is not a useful illustration for conversion, which is sudden and radical, overwhelming and considerable. No, it's uh, illustrations for conversion. You'd look more at something like a dramatic change of seasons. One of those springs, or rather winters, that turns suddenly into spring. And the temperature goes up, a little on the late side perhaps, and then everything comes to life. And all the dead branches, well, they give evidence of life. And the foliage appears, and in due course, the flowers and everything is so different. So much more colour, so much more wonderful. The very atmosphere in which you live is improved. And it was all so sudden. Wonderful spring days that changed everything around. That's getting a bit nearer, a useful illustration of conversion to God through Jesus Christ. Some years ago, my wife and family and I, we lived in a house along the Kennington Park Road. And across the road, there was a particularly grand uh, Georgian terrace house, uh, six rather than five stories high, and uh, different colour brick too. Very old, mellow red brick rather than the usual London yellow, a very distinctive house. And it was in a dilapidated state, and the company set about uh, dealing with it, restoring it. This was quite astonishing. The skips that came and went from that house over a period of days, everything came out in those skips. First of all, the household rubbish from all the former occupants, and then all kinds of scrapings and floorboards came out. Endless joists came out. The material that came out of that place, there were so many days of series of skips Why, you looked at it and you half expected it to implode at any moment. They'd stripped out everything. And then they set about its restoration. That's more like 
an illustration of conversion to God, although it just took a long time. Not so good on that side, but that's what we're looking for when we think of the great change, which is the phenomenon of conversion to God. The Apostle Paul says, What things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. I could think of a rescue illustration too. Years ago, the Prime Minister in the early 80s had a son who went on a racing in a car rally, Paris to Dakar, and in the Sahara Desert managed to get lost and was lost for six days. And the then Prime Minister was the young man's mother was naturally very anxious and sent out all kinds of alarm calls to the Algerian government. And we were reading in our newspapers that six military aircraft were searching for him. And eventually they found him and his co-driver. Oh, I think it was some 50-odd miles off course. Six days. Just imagine being lost without all that air cover and search party, all the expenses and so on. Uh, if you survived, maybe you would be found emaciated. No food, no water, no fuel, broken down vehicle, and then rescued. What a thing to be rescued from those circumstances and have relief and food. And in comes some kind of a vehicle to take you back home. That's more like an illustration of conversion. It's a rescue, dear friends. And that's what we're going to talk about. What are the gains in conversion? What are the gains? Well, conversion is a moral change, first of all, and a tremendous moral change. Your values change. Your relationship to sin changes. What you loved becomes what you hate. Oh, it still plagues you, but your attitude is altogether changed. And so is your equipment to deal with it. It used to be, before conversion, inevitable that you would fall to temptation and sin. But now you have a degree of strength you never had before. And God helps you in answer to prayer. You're now involved in a campaign against your sin. Your life has changed. Morally, you are altogether different. Your conscience has come to life. It used to speak from time to time, but now it speaks much more often. And it guards you, and it holds you. You are morally different. You didn't do it to yourself. You didn't work it up. There was no way you could have done that. It was an act of God. Changed you profoundly. And gave you new life. And a new nature. Then it's also a spiritual change. That soul of yours. The spirit within you. It's there but it's dormant. It's asleep. It's not functioning. 
You can't pray. You can't have any sense of God or divine things. It's as though he's a million miles away. He's a theory. He's not meaningful to you. You're spiritually dead. Dormant is a better word. But when you're converted to God, your spirit is filled with life and it functions and you can pray and you can relate to God. But we'll talk about that a little more later. It's a legal change. Yes, a legal change, conversion. Now, everything changes for you legally. You had no standing with God before. You had no status. You didn't count for anything. But now you've been adopted into his family. You're his child. You're a citizen of heaven. You have a place awaiting you. Your whole status has changed. You're an heir, an heir of God and a joint heir with Christ. Those are the words of scripture. You are bound to inherit. You had no rights at all, but you're given by God rights to everlasting life. Your status has changed entirely. Adopted children of God. Then there's a relational change in that you can know your God. He becomes real to you in, his, in the scriptures, in his commands, in his counsels to you. These things are real to you. And when you pray, you have a strange sense of assurance that you are heard. And of course, that only doubles when your prayers are regularly answered as they are because you have a relationship with God now in the sensing of his love in the hearing of his voice as you read his words you have a sense of God in the imparting of peace and joy when you need it and you pray for it sometimes because of the affairs of life, you can be crushed and confused and dismayed and overwrought. And you pray to God and you have what the apostle calls a peace of God which passeth all understanding. You never had such experiences before you were converted to God. It's a relational change. According to God's pleasure, you can feel and know his influence upon you and in your life. I could read from Ephesians chapter 3, Paul's letter to the Ephesians chapter 3, a few verses. Don't turn to it, this will be too quick. These are the words of the Apostle Paul, praying to God that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might by his spirit in the inner man. Listen to these words. That Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height and to know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge 
that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God, now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us, unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages. What exalted words they are. And you can feel wonderful experiences of the goodness of God to you and your love to him. There is a relational change in you. You were insensitive and unaware of such things before conversion. These are all parts of that great experience of conversion. Then there's an intellectual change in you also. Yes, doesn't matter whether you are somebody gifted with uh, great mental facilities for different subjects and so on. When you become a Christian in the spiritual realm for the things of God, you gain a new understanding. You can grasp the Word of God, God's revelation. You see things from God's point of view. Your intellect is affected. It has been said your mind is emancipated, and it is. You can now see the context of life, the purpose of it, the destination of it. You see so much more before, however clever, however accomplished. You were a person shut in to a material life, shut in to those limits and those horizons, and you couldn't see outside them or beyond them. And you couldn't understand anything that had a spiritual explanation, like the fall of man, the condition of human beings. You never understood it. Look at the crazy things intelligent people believe today. Such things, such notions as man is good at heart. And you, people can't see reality, anything connected with man's spiritual condition and the real state of affairs but when you come to Christ you have this blessing even in your intellect in your mind and what comes with it is a deep and profound conviction concerning the truth of God's word and God's explanations and God's promises in the Bible and about Christ and whereas once you thought this was just a book, an ancient book, no doubt you thought, full of myths, full of mysteries, impossible to understand, laden with contradictions, as you would expect from any mere human product of literature. You come to grasp and see how it's organized, its, its nature, its integrity, its consistency, its perfections, and to understand its explanations and its message. You have a new understanding, which makes it obvious, coupled with the conviction, this is God's word, this is God's truth. So there's an intellectual change in conversion. All these things take place, and there is an emotional change. And I put this last, and deliberately, 
because people will be quick to say, oh, there you are. This is just an emotional thing. People are persuaded to be Christians by some emotional whim or manipulation. Oh no, the gospel of Christ appeals to your reason. It appeals to your mind. It tells you you're alienated from God and you need his forgiveness and Christ has come to be a saviour and how he's purchased salvation, how he's borne away the punishment of sin for those who believe in him. And it calls upon you, the Christian gospel, to seek the Lord and call upon him. But it appeals to your reason. It doesn't sweep you into the kingdom of God by some emotional means. It can't. It's such an unpopular message. You're sinners. You've fallen. You're away from God. Nobody wants to hear that. It can only appeal to your reason. And the Spirit of God appeals to your heart, to your soul. And then you respond. But when you respond... This great change, which is moral, spiritual, legal, relational, this great change fires all your emotions. And you feel such love and indebtedness to God. And you know him by his actions toward you. And you thrill at the teaching of his word and you love to learn of him and you want and desire to obey him and you look forward one day at the end of life's journey to being received by him and being ushered into eternal things. Your emotions are affected in a way you never knew before. Conversion is wonderful. It affects you at every level. The time is going on. There are gains. There are losses. What do you lose? If you come to Christ, should you repent of your sin and give your life to him and be converted to him, what will you lose? Well, I can tell you, you'll lose things you're well rid of. Things you need to be rid of. You lose the judgment of God. The judgment of Almighty God which hangs over us all before we're converted to Christ like a great sword. We must give account of our rebellion against him and all the sin that has ruled our lives and our failure to serve him and love him and obey him and study him and honour him and worship him. We have to give an account of why we spat upon our maker, spurned our creator, Rejected the one who rightfully owns us. But you come to Christ and you know his forgiving love 
and that he suffered already to take away the punishment of sin due to you. He's made an atonement for you, and you're clean, and you're new, and you walk with him, and you've lost the fear of the judgment of God. And when you're on your deathbed, deathbed, you won't quake with fear because you know what the future holds to you. And you lose alienation from God. Before conversion, there is an immense chasm between us and God. A mountain, if you like, between us. An ocean between us. We're so far away from the God of love, the living God. Should we feel our need of him and call out to him because we've never repented of our sin and trusted in Christ and found him in conversion? There is nothing but silence from God. The gap between us is too great. We are enemies of God, sinners against him. He is offended by us. His righteous, holy indignation is aroused against us. Alienation, separation from your God. Conversion, you've lost it. It's gone. No alienation. The mountain of guilt that stands in the way between me and God is gone. Christ has dealt with it. I lose something else. By conversion to Christ, I lose captivity. Captivity to my sin. Are you 20? You're a captive to sin if you've never been converted. We were touching on this this morning. It may not fully have emerged in you yet. It's just somewhat evident in this sin and that sin and another sin. By the time you're 30, they're all worse. And 40, worse still. And 50 and 60, hardened, you don't care anymore. You're captive to sin. We don't like to think like that. It's very wounding to human pride. But it's true. You're captive to this world. You have to do what everybody else does. You're a conformist, a captive to this fallen world and its fashions and tastes and ways and ideas and teachings. You're in its grip. You're a captive to Satan, the enemy of souls. Most of your life you will do as you are tempted. What is your sin? If you're a proud person, you're captive to that. Your pride will always rule you. If you're an unclean person, 
you'll be a captive to that. If you're a selfish person, you'll be captive. If you're a covetous person who must have more, it'll rule you all your life. Conversion to Christ takes away all your captivity. And for the first time, you know liberty and freedom before God. You lose those things. Conversion brings you pardon. Conversion brings you what we call, the scripture calls, justification. You are justified before God. It's a wonderful theological term. You are pronounced not guilty in the sight of God because Christ has borne your guilt on your behalf. And more, you are pronounced worthy of an eternal reward. You're not, of course, but Christ has earned it for you. He is your saviour. He's borne your punishment. He's lived your life of righteousness. He's atoned for your sin. He's offered up his infinite perfections to deserve heaven for all his people. He is God and he is man. You've trusted in him. You can be justified as though you had never sinned. Pardoned, justified, and recreated, made new, a new nature, a new heart, a new everything. I'm out of my time. The writer of these words in Philippians 3, the Apostle Paul, was originally known as Saul of Tarsus. I'm sure you knew that. Saul of Tarsus. Before his conversion, he thought very well of himself. He thought he was very accomplished and would be bound to be one of those especially blessed by God. But he had an experience on the road to Damascus when the risen Lord appeared to him in blinding light and he realized that all he imagined about himself was false. All his life was worthless before God. All his accomplishments, or so he imagined they were accomplishments, were worthless for his eternal salvation. And that's why he uttered these great words in Philippians chapter 3. But what things were gained to me, I thought counted in my favor, these I counted loss. For Christ, a prize far greater, yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and do count them but dung. The Greek word skubalon. It's a compound word. It means things thrown to the dogs. It's used here 
figuratively, of things that are worthless. Our King James translators translated it dung. More popular today to translate it refuse. Best of all, I think, is something like this. The worst of the scraps are thrown out in ancient times for the dogs. The best in our things in our lives. They may not be sinful things. You have your home comforts and your transportation. Many things that are a blessing and a benefit in life. But you come to see that these are all worthless in contributing to your standing before God. They're nothing. And if God required it of you, you'd give them all up rather than not have Christ. That's the greatest thing, to have a saviour, to have his love, to have him come and die for you, to bear your punishment for you, to deserve heaven for you, to save you, pardon you, change you, rebuild you, conversion. And all I do is repent of my sin and trust him, trust him, trust my soul to him and my life and yield to him. And he does so much for me and for you. Well, this is the call of Christ. The call of Christ to every man and woman born. We speak of the general call of the gospel. The call to repent and seek Christ and come to him made universally to everyone. And then we speak of the effectual call of Christ. And there's a difference. The general call is to all, but only to those who are saved is it effectual. Does it pierce the heart and touch the soul and draw to him? May you hear, dear friends, the effectual call of Christ There is nothing to be compared with conversion to him. Let's pray together. O God, our gracious Heavenly Father, look upon us all. May there be those in our company here this evening who find in that real sense the love of Christ which passeth knowledge. O Lord, come in pardoning love. Come in transforming love and grace. Come and deal with our souls and save tonight all who call upon thee. We ask it in our dear Saviour's name for his sake. Amen.